My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. On today's episode, I got to talk to Ben Nielsen, the author of Wicked Ones, a forged-in-the-dark game about playing monsters building a dungeon. He does have a free and deluxe version, and links are in the show notes, so definitely go ahead and check those out. During the episode, we talk about a bunch of different topics, primarily focused around Wicked Ones, but a lot of the information would be applicable outside of this RPG. Some of the topics include the cycle of play, the four-month campaign, building dungeons, writing RPGs, and dice pools. Remember to like, follow, and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening on. Be sure to comment your favorite part of the episode. If you're interested in chatting further or being on the show, check out our Discord server. Link is in the show notes. I hope you enjoy the episode, and let's get started. So welcome, Ben. Mm -hmm. Uh, You are the author of Wicked Ones, so really excited to have this conversation here. Um, Why don't you give me just a little bit how you got started into tabletop RPGs, and then maybe kind of how you ended up writing Wicked Ones. Uh, All right, so I'm about 40 now, Uh, so I started maybe about 20 years ago back in university. My uh, university roommate, he he was playing in a a D&D game, and kind of in high school and stuff, I always liked fantasy, but I never really, I lived out in the countryside, and I didn't really have a group of friends that were into that stuff, so... Uh, after going to university, I met up with him, and then he invited me into his group. So I got started with 3.5, and then uh, played a bunch of that then. Um, how I got started writing Wicked Ones, I guess. I mean, it's it's kind of the same guy, actually. Like, uh, um, I don't know. It, maybe a lot of people know this about me because I talk about it some, but I live in Japan, right? And that same friend of mine, his name's Luke. He uh, he moved to Japan, and then about a year later, he invited me over here, and uh, he still lives kind of close to me, right? So that's that's pretty cool. But uh, a few years back, we started getting into uh, like throwing around the idea of writing a game together to kind of fix the stuff that we didn't like about the games we were playing. So and then we we wrote our own fantasy heartbreaker that didn't go <laughs> so well, and uh, then after that, uh, I had um, I guess that was like three four years ago. And then uh, I had always had the idea that writing a Dungeon Keeper game would be cool, right? Uh, that I thought, like, making a game where you can play as monsters building a dungeon would be pretty awesome. Uh, around the same time, I played a game of uh, Blades, Blades in the Dark. And, like, as soon as I played it, played that, I, I knew it. I was like, this is the system to run this in. It's, like, perfect, right, for what I wanted to do. I, I, I guess that's kind of where or how it all got started. I kind of had that same feeling with the Blades in the Dark mechanics. It's just, it's very, I want to say simple, but it also just works really well. Yeah, yeah. Like, the cycle of play kind of helps craft this story that feels like a TV show, right? So every session sort of revolves around that cycle, um, and it keeps things moving forward. Uh, like, it also, I guess also, like, the play style, I mean, you're, you're playing these scoundrels in Duskwall, right? And, uh, it's, the whole time you're kind of being, um, encouraged to do scoundrelly things. So you're already, you're already a bunch of monsters. So the mechanics just work for that, to kind of push you into doing these, like, 
you know, kind of gray zone or just straight up evil and, and uh, criminal things. So as soon as I played that, and it feels comfortable too. I think that's the that's the point is that like you, the players can feel pretty comfortable slipping into the roles of those criminals, of those like evil, evil humans, right? Um, they don't really feel like they're doing terrible things themselves. So I think the mechanics support that. And I, I guess that's the thing that made the transition to like a dungeon building game where you play as orcs and goblins and stuff uh, easier. Sure. And I was actually going to ask you about that uh, with the cycle of play specifically because mm-hmm. Wicked Ones is a lot more uh, codified in like what your procedure is between actual play and then downtime activities and kind of building up the dungeon. Can you kind of talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit? Uh, sure. Um, I guess, yeah, codified's a, a good word for it. I think that the idea of um, the players running a dungeon means that fictionally it has to make some kind of sense that time needs to be passing as the dungeon slowly grows. And the cycle of play really supports that. You have this... Um, this kind of short burst time-wise inside the fictional timeline, this short burst of outside activity where they're heading out into the world and they're raiding, right? They go on this raid, they grab some stuff, and they bring it back into the dungeon. But, you know, 90% of a monster's life is just hanging out in the dungeon, really, right? They're not always, like, constantly roaming the countryside. So that's the lurking phase of the game that uh, after this short burst of activity, then you go back into the dungeon and you're lurking. And then during that time, it uh, you know gives you time to uh, build up the dungeon, make traps, or work on digging out rooms and things like that. So the, the cycle of play kind of um, ensures that the game's timeline flow will go in that way, in a way that makes sense that the dungeon is growing over time. And one of the other things that I pulled out of there was, kind of when you talk about the campaign you actually kind of set a limit or like a expected limit. Like it's going to be this many sessions. It should take about this long, you know, in real time to actually play through it. What kind of, what was the idea behind that? A little bit of it is again, representing the fiction. Well, um, part of a dungeon is, a. Uh, is the fact that it's static and it can't move, right? And you can't roam too far away from it. So like you can only be gone a, a week or less probably before your dungeon's just gonna go to hell while you're not there or it's gonna get raided while you're gone. So that kind of creates this small region that you're able to interact with because you're not gonna be able to move. And um, they're only going to put up with so much, right? Like if you if you just keep you know raiding these small towns over and over and over again, like eventually a bigger player is going to either step in, uh, either a bigger player will step in or they'll just leave. So it kind of creates that natural uh, limit on there, there's like a natural breaking point to the situation. Like you can only lurk for so long. Uh, part of the assumed uh, truths of the fiction is that it's hard to find your dungeon. So there's no real mechanics for that, except it's represented in raids only happening due to, uh, uh, not, I'm sorry, not raids, uh, invasions by adventurers on your dungeon, mostly happening as a result of uh, uh, this thing called blowback roll, where when you go out into the world and you go on a raid, and then after it, you kind of roll to see how well they are able to track you back to the dungeon. So uh, the there's kind of a 
suspension of disbelief there that your dungeon isn't something that's easy to find. But if it keeps happening over and over and over and over again, eventually everyone's just going to know. It's going to be like too obvious where the dungeon is. So I had those things in mind, right? Um, and then uh, that there's this kind of natural breaking point, this natural limit to how long this kind of story can make sense um, before before it just you know kind of turns nonsensical. And uh, at the same time, I always kind of thought that um, four months is a good length for a campaign. So four months uh, creates 16 sessions. There's four tiers in the uh, dungeon. So your dungeon kind of tiers up from tier zero to one, two, three, four. And that, mean, that, that represents growing in power. So ha that happening about once a month is a pretty good pace. Um, so that's another reason for it. Not only that, I guess, uh, but blades in the dark kind of has a mechanical limit like as you gain xp and you uh uh your your action ratings increase uh, you get more abilities and you kind of just become too powerful um rolling lots of dice is bad because uh the dice are drama generators the gm doesn't roll dice that the the player dice rolls generate the things that are happening in the world so if they're rolling over time if you uh kind of level up too many times right like you end up rolling too too many dice and then bad things don't happen you're just succeeding all the time you kind of become too competent and then right. the, the, the the world kind of grinds to a halt it becomes too static and not really reacting to what you're doing yeah that makes sense Both like that's the... a long answer but it's all those things kind of together <laughs> yeah well and the the geography makes sense too because you're not you know, like in any other campaign, like a D&D campaign or a Star Wars campaign or something, mm -hmm. you could just leave and or like hop on a ship and go to another continent or something. And then, yeah. you know, who cares? Right. But that's I mean, that that's something I took from John Harper, the author of Blades, that um, he created Duskwall. And are, are you familiar with Blades? I've read. Well, I mean, through, uh, I've kind of skimmed through it. Good. Like, I guess, I mean, even if uh, some people listening might not be, but uh, the setting is this kind of Victorian-era city, um, but the world has gone through this apocalypse, basically, and there's, like, wasteland all around these little cities. And you're in this city, and you're surrounded by this lightning barrier that kind of blocks out the uh, sort of wandering uh, evil spirits that are outside of that barrier. So you're stuck in the city. Like, <laughs> you, you, you kind of can't leave it. And it creates this pressure cooker environment where the things that you're doing, you have to operate with inside that city. So whenever you do something, there's going to be some kind of pushback to like everything you do. And that's really important for keeping the drama high. You can't really run away from your problems. And the dungeon has that same thing. You know, you're stuck in the region. Right. If you if you continue to pressure and, and raid a local kingdom, they're going to rally against you. That's just what's going to happen. Right, exactly. They're, like a dungeon doesn't really stand up to like an army, you know. Like if if the local lord wants to march two, three hundred people down into your dungeon, it, it's not going to survive it, right? Like it's there's there's kind of a lot of assumptions that the dungeon needs to be secretive and hidden, and this place that only adventurers are likely to wander upon. So. And then it'll hit that breaking point where, like, the local baron's going to be like, oh, okay, if we're just getting raided nonstop, we're just going to march an army of, like, a thousand people down into there. And a lot of us are going to die, but, like, eventually we'll brute force our way through it. So, Right. So you're, And then your kind of time barrier is either that happens 
and your dungeon is effectively destroyed or cleared out, or you overtake the local land, right? Yeah, right. So you've you've already kind of beaten all of the other factions into a pulp, and there's not a whole lot left to do. And okay, mission accomplished. That's awesome. Make a new dungeon. Do something different. Play a different game. So, like, I, yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of really long campaigns. I know a lot of people are, but for me, there's just too many systems and too many games and too many ideas that I want something tight, like a TV show, like a two-season TV show, you know? It doesn't wander on and on and on forever, always the next thing. And uh, yeah, so I guess that kind of played into that decision to to, to create the, the four-month campaign. I've seen people online talk about uh, having success with setting uh, like session limits, like we're going to do 10 sessions, or in your case, 16 sessions. And I, I haven't done that personally. I think I would like to, though, because uh, like you said, you can kind of just kind of go on and on and on but then also it feels like a lot of the campaigns that i have been in there's really no defined endpoint. so then they just eventually fizzle out when everybody can't continue scheduling together anymore which isn't really a satisfying end to a campaign pretty anticlimactic yeah <laughs> yeah like i'm i'm right there with you on that really um that if you know how long it's going to be then you're going to start to create these story arcs that match that time limit so you're going to build towards some sort of climax, and hopefully it'll make a better story. Uh, I talk a little bit in the book uh, that I wrote about um, how the GM is sort of like a director of a TV show, and then the players are like these actors that have a lot of uh, room to ad-lib, right? And uh, kind of, uh, I guess, actors that can ad-lib and change the script themselves as, as well. A little bit they're like writers too. Um, but if you kind of get in this mindset of you're creating these TV shows and creating these cool scenes and this, these storylines that will resolve, I think that all matches that same idea that it matches with the, uh, set time limit that we need to accomplish something cool and enjoyable within this time limit. Then we do that thing and move on to the next. Um, for your, your players then in this system, uh, so kind of along those lines with the, the campaigns fizzling out early, I've played in multiple D&D campaigns where, you know, you could, you know, your max level is level 20, right? But we only ever make it to like level 7 or level 10, and then we never get to see like half of what our character can do. So with the players in this game, as you're getting to that like climax, I assume you're getting to roughly your like maximum level for your characters, right? Yeah, although it's, it's, it's not really... Um... It's not really vertical growth with your character. It's more horizontal. As you as you get more, uh, uh, you can increase your action ratings and roll more dice. But uh, in the system I wrote, not Blades, uh, in in Wicked Ones, um, increasing your action ratings actually requires you to almost die. So like you're only going to be able to pull that off a certain number of times. So every time you're like real close to death, you you can get um, an an XP that is then spendable to to up your action ratings. So that kind of creates a natural limit to how like strong you can grow, but the abilities each character has, a few of them make you stronger, I suppose, but a lot of them just open up more options so that you can do different things instead of making you really, really, really good at the one thing. Sure. So your, your power level is not exactly growing. You're not getting more hit points and you're not getting harder to hit really. Um, 
you're just getting like permission within the little story you're making to be doing other types of cool stuff. That makes sense. And that would make it, uh, I don't remember how Blades in the Dark handles it, but like Dungeon World, for example, even, I mean, you can increase your stats when you level up, but like the max, um, well, like for health and stuff, it's not like you get an extra like eight hit points every time you level up. Like mm -hmm. if you wanted to focus on your health, the most you could put into it is like another 10 points maximum, you know, so you're, yeah. you're always fairly close to being killed regardless if you're at first level or um, 10th level, essentially at the max of Dungeon World. Yeah, and kind of getting back to D&D, &D, I mean, I think, like, most designers have learned, like, the lessons from D&D. From, from &D. There's there's all these kind of, you know, golden cows that they can't really, the like, Wizards of the Coast can't really get away from whenever they're designing D&D. &D. You have to have level 1 to 20. You have to have hit points that increase per level. You have to have scaling attack bonuses and armor that offset each other. And you just have to do these things, right? So, but all, all it does is kind of creates like this climb of uh, um, like uh, attacks that as your attack bonus goes up, their armor goes up. So your chance to hit doesn't really go up, right? Like the numbers are just getting bigger. So instead of, and then not only that, you get this huge amount of hit points that other stuff has to have to chew through to ever make you feel in danger. And I, I guess other games just try to avoid that feeling. You, you were saying uh, campaigns fizzle out around like level seven a lot, right? And I think that's probably because, <clears throat> I mean, and maybe some people are gonna strongly disagree with this, but like higher level play in uh, in D and D doesn't feel all that great. Like the sweet spot is like level four to seven. It's it's where you're competent and you you can do some stuff. Um, you got a fair amount of options, but things are still dangerous. You don't have a huge, a uh, big number of hit points. So I think that's why, like, as you as you start approaching level level ten, you start getting too heroic, and it's it's like a different game. You're no longer like traveling adventurers. You're like superheroes. Right. Yeah, and so, just like, like you it, said, monsters become just kind of a bag of hit points with other right. abilities. Let, like, it needs to be three different games. Like, it needs to be level one to three is a different game, and then levels four to nine is a different game. Then levels ten and above is a different game with different mechanics. But they try to shoehorn all of these different types of play, these the, the three tiers of play, into one single game. So, like, I, I mean, I, you can see that with Blades and a lot, lots of games these days. Um that there's a real tight concept and focus to the game, and the mechanics really, really, really interact with that concept well. So the mechanics are there to support this one concept. But D&D has three concepts, like the the really incompetent low-level adventurers, and then the pretty well-traveled adventurers, and then the superhero adventurers, right? And I think the mechanics just can't do all of them very well. And maybe I missed it, but how does Wicked Ones handle, like, HP or wounds or whatever. Sure, there's there's no hit points in the game. There's con there's there's a condition called bloodied, and either you're bloodied or you're not bloodied. So getting hit a little bit doesn't doesn't really bother a monster, right? It's only the big ones. Um, there's this other there's another condition called shock, and uh, then your your stats are basically split into three categories: brains, muscles, and guts. So just to kind of um, give a short version of it. Let's say you get like bashed in the head with a shield or something, um, but it's 
it's just going to stun you a little bit, right? So you, maybe you take shock to brains there as you stumble back. Now, like any of your actions that interact in, inside of that category, you're going to take a minus one D, well, minus one die on, on the next roll. Then you recover. Like you just get this kind of short um, uh, negative to your roll, and then you kind of shake it off and you, you keep moving. But uh, what bloodied does is like as soon as you take a big hit, this is like getting a, a sword shoved through your gut or something. Um, yeah, bloodied, uh, it gives you shock to all three of those categories. So you're, you're really kind of struggling there for a minute. And then plus, if you take another hit while bloodied, you die. And that's basically it. It's like two. You get you get like two chances. Um, you get the big hit, and then now you got a sword stuck in you. And if you get hit again, you're gonna die. And then can you? I think I read that you can clear that too if you manage to get all of the shock removed. Sure, that's it. Yeah, like as uh, if you make those rolls, um, you're making. You have to make a, a, a roll with an action inside of, for example, brains, then the shock for brains clears. And then you need to make another roll with inside of muscles, that clears. And then one inside of guts actions, and then that clears. And if you manage to do that while still staying alive, which is pretty unlikely, but <laughs> because you're, you're rolling at minus 1D, and then bad rolls generate consequences. But if you do manage to do that, then you recover. And that's kind of just matching this idea that like monsters kind of don't care too much about the fact that their arm got cut off. You know, or the fact that there's a sword sticking out of them. They, uh, they're they really good at kind of um, uh, pulling through in those situations, ignoring the wounds or, or not being phased by them. Yeah, there's a lot of either, like, novels that do it or even in movies where, you know, sword goes right through the, the orc or whatever, and then they just kind of smile and keep going for a little bit. I mean... Like it's exactly um, the Lord of the Rings movie, right? Like so, yep. um, yeah. Aragorn stabs that huge Urukai orc right, right in the gut or whatever, or through the chest kind of area. He just grabs the sword and pulls it in, and he doesn't care. And uh, let's say that at that point, like something else happened, that orc's gonna be fine. He's gonna pull the sword out, and he's just bleeding, but he's he's not worried about it, you know. So. It's and it's it's meant to it's meant to kind of uh, promote that sort of play. Um, that, that, that image happening on screen. But not only that, it, like the uh, allowing you to recover means you're going to put yourself into the dangerous situation more because it's not that bad of a thing. You know, it's like, well, now I'm bloody, but I could not be bloodied. So just keep rolling, keep doing stuff, and maybe I'm going to get out of it. And probably not. Your character is actually going to die. And that's also like a theme in the book um, or in the game is that your characters are kind of expendable. You know, you're all making this dungeon together, but like... The other people don't really care about you too much. You're just monsters. So go out there and get killed and then make a new cool monster. Bring it in. And dungeons are pretty accepting of like new monsters showing up and just kind of uh, working their way into it. So uh, The excuse to, uh, uh, to make a new character is always nice, especially if you're a GM and you always have lots of character ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, uh, it's it's kind of hard for me to imagine anyone playing past about four sessions, to be honest. Like, I always want to... I always want to start doing something else, and my characters grow more and more suicidal. <laughs> like they just kind of put themselves in more like greater and greater like uh, dangerous situations. I think it's cool that your system is kind of built to promote that. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't think. Oh, uh, who who was it? Um, what is her name? Like, uh, uh, she wrote the book Dream Askew and Dream Apart. That book. Her last name's Avery. I think her first name's 
I can't remember Aldi Avery, but anyway, Avery, right? Um, she, uh, I, I think it was her that said this thing to that your characters, like you don't own them, right? Uh, like they, uh, they're they're not really they're not you. They're just this thing that you're using for a short time. So you should drive it like you're driving a stolen car. Just take it for a joyride and get crazy with it, you know? Like, don't care about what happens to it, because it's not yours. It's not you. Right. And then as soon... Yeah, it's just going to get destroyed or whatever, and it'll create... And, I I mean, that that means, like, physically or emotionally to those characters, too. It's like, put them through the ringer, you know? Uh, you're making this cool TV show, and just, like, yeah, put them into, like, terrible situations and see what happens to them. And uh, if it goes well, okay. If it doesn't, that's also interesting because it's interesting when bad things happen. We like that when we watch TV shows and bad things happen to TV characters, and it's uh, it makes for interesting gameplay. Like if you if you if you want to, I mean, I wrote this in the book as well that um, uh, Wicked Ones isn't really a game to be won. You know, like you're not trying to win. There is no winning. It, it, there's no win condition really. So it's just playing to find out what happens to this dungeon and just put it in your mind. You're probably going to lose, actually. And that's cool because in the end, monsters should lose because it's it's a dungeon and there are heroes out there. <laughs> They're going to come kick your teeth in. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you how does the game handle like uh, like raids and maybe that's the wrong word because I know you use that in another way, but like getting attacked by uh, the good guys and like defending your dungeon. What is that? Mm-hmm process like uh the 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 process of invasion what it what does it look like you mean yeah or how does it play yeah. out um uh, yeah um actually real fast her name's avery alder i was i could not come up with it so anyway um yeah about in uh invasions they're pretty zoomed in, you know, um, the, let's say three, three adventures kind of show up at your dungeon and they show up for whatever reason, uh, usually as the result of a bad role, uh, after a raid, this role called blowback. So it's like, what's, what are the consequences of the thing you just did? So you raid the town and then they, they pay some gold and hire some adventures and then they come into the dungeon and, um, the PCs themselves are separated from the, uh from the first level of the dungeon they're separated into what's called the sanctum and it's kind of like a mental separation too that that we don't really want the bosses to be interacting with this invasion early on that they're they're the end of dungeon boss that's the pcs right and if you don't do that if you allow them to be running around on the first level it becomes like a guerrilla warfare game or something and it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel dungeony. So like, so them being on the first level, that's below them. That's not their job. Their job's not to, not to die to adventures there. That's the minions' job. So they also have these mini characters called minions, and uh, that just you know, it's like a group of uh, crappy goblins or something that they can role play as. And th- they're on the first level. So the adventurers kind of path their way through your dungeon. And it's kind of like a game like Mousetrap, really. So they're, they're just moving through your dungeon. They'll hit traps, and then the traps will roll to see uh, how, how affected the adventurers get. And there are other creatures in your dungeon. And they're fighting their way through all of this stuff. And then you use locks to control their pathing to keep them from going into sensitive areas or to push them along other ways that have more traps. And then all the while you play as these minions that uh, can pop out and like while they're while the adventurer is getting hit with a trap, then you bring your minions in and use that as like a uh, a chance to to score like a good hit or something. But in the end, the the adventurers always make their way through. You know, like they they, uh, 
like that was kind of a hard part with the design is that like these adventures have to be tanks you know like they got to take all this damage like trap after trap after trap and then the the possibility of them making their way all the way through the dungeon needs to be about 75 percent like you don't want the dungeon actually stopping them always so that was that was kind of a hard challenge um uh design wise so you mentioned like you can lock the doors uh, to kind of change where they go. Is there anything like in the rules that kind of say how how the adventurers move about the dungeon, or yeah, is it it's just... real specific? It's it's not up to the GM. Um, the adventurers move in a they enter through an entrance, right, and then they move in a straight line until there's a fork. And when there's a fork, the GM asks the players, "Which way do you not want them to go?" And then the players will think about, like, I don't want them to go this way. Then the GM makes a, uh, a pathfinding roll, which is just roll uh, uh, a d6. And then on a high, they go the way that the players want them to go. And on a low, they go the way the players don't want them to go. And that's basically it. And when they encounter locks, the locks will repulse them, like, uh, repel them, and make them go back another way. So if you really don't want them into an area, you put a lock there. And then they come up against that lock, and then the lock will roll. And then if it fails, they push through. And if it succeeds, it pushes them away. Until they have no other options, and then they come back and you, the lock rolls again. Sure. So there's there's kind of a level of, you know, really strategy and how you actually design the dungeons then to kind Absolutely. of deal with the pathfinding as well. Right, and that's the fun part, right? You're trying to make this thing that, that works really well as a trap or a, a way to kill these adventures to kind of grind them down and stuff. So, like, if there's not actually some level of uh, strategy to it, then that would kind of be missing the point of building, the, uh, actually going through the, the trouble of drawing the dungeon out. So, like, if none of that stuff mattered, we could just, you know, hand wave it and just make up stories inside the dungeon. But it's all real strategic. So, and that's that's also kind of why um, players will each be adding to the dungeon, kind of independently, because you, you you want them to be making some sort of strategy, but, like, they're not good enough at working together to make the strategy perfect. So they're all, like, sort of end up, it's kind of too many cooks in the kitchen situation. So that creates this sort of, like, chaotic dungeon instead of this super well-designed dungeon. Sure. So when they're working on the dungeon, does every player essentially have, like, a... Like, they get to pick a room to build, and then they just kind of all plop it down at the same time? Or how does that work? That, yeah, the... the um, The basic setup is that in the first session, there'll be, like, a little scene where the monsters clear out some cave or something. That's going to be the home of their dungeon, right? And then there's a montage after that where you go from nothing to a full but small functioning dun dungeon. And that process, the players take turns drawing different elements of the dungeon. And so one person will draw like a dungeon room and another person will draw a trap and a tunnel and like this, right? So that already kind of creates a little bit of a chaotic situation. Then after that, as they go through their the cycle of play during the lurking phase, the PCs or their minions will be building stuff. Like they'll say, "I want to build a trap," and then if you finish building the trap, you just put it down. On on the you draw it yourself. So then it just becomes about whoever is doing those things. Then then they 
like they they draw draw it out themselves so um and then also uh there's these things called discoveries which gives the gm a little bit of control over what's happening in the dungeon like as as the dungeon grows uh the gm rolls for a discovery and it could be good or it could be bad but and i say this very specifically in the book like part of the part of the function of discoveries is destroying the perfect layouts of dungeons so like you you discover that well wow this you've discovered a new cavern but unfortunately it connects two parts of your dungeon that you would rather not have connected so now there's like this other way that the adventurers could you know uh kind of sidestep a lot of your traps and that spurs them into action like okay we got to build more traps there we got to put a lock there to push them back the other way so right it's a complication but it's it's a complication to the actual design of the dungeon not to the characters specifically there's kind of that other yeah. element of play yeah that there's no way to make the perfect dungeon like the perfect dungeon doesn't exist and there's always little little bonuses and advantages for the adventurers to find so the players are going through that like uh kind of like um tough job of uh the, i mean i guess they're kind of playing the gm like the traditionally the gm's role right so they're, they're they're trying to design this dungeon that's really hard for these adventurers to get through and then you know the adventurers are clever and they can find little little ways to to get around the traps and such uh one of my thoughts as i was reading through this is this would be a really fun game to play to like make a dungeon and then like populate it in a world that you actually then go play another system and you're the heroes or whatever and oh hey look we found our dungeon from our other game yeah yeah that would be cool and not only that i think anyone that actually did that like the dungeon would be so much more alive than it normally would be because it has like all of this fiction that's already happened inside of it like these these creatures they have you know these like histories like the things that happened in the previous game uh I think it would maybe maybe feel a lot more real. Uh, dungeons tend to have a feeling of just being, you know, throwaway, right? Like it's just like this session we're going to go in and kind of r roll through this dungeon, and it's all just kind of um, about being satisfying to the players that they just push through this dungeon really fast and like um, you know get some treasure and kill some monsters and figure out a, a puzzle or whatever. But the dungeon's real throwaway. So the GM putting like lots and lots of effort into making that dungeon really alive, it it could feel like a little bit of like wasted prep or something. So, but being able to pull this dungeon from this other game in into into um, a more heroic fantasy game, and that dungeon has this like quite big backstory behind it. I think that would feel pretty cool. Even if you, as the GM, switched up some of the stuff or maybe blocked off some of the you know cave in some of the rooms or something to kind of you know the players are familiar with it but not you know it's they don't have since they were last yeah <laughs> it's not perfect knowledge of like oh i know this yeah. trap is here still and you know right. um, yeah like i i think springing it on them without telling them about it is pretty cool too right they're just like heading down into like some little cave and you're like slowly mentioning and then finally like uh like mentioning details and finally it will dawn on them they're like oh this is our dungeon whoa or whatever so yeah that would be a pretty fun reveal yeah um i wanted to circle back on the so the adventure is going through the dungeon and then the actual them actually breaking into what'd you call it the sanctum and having like a kind of a boss fight with the player characters then? Yep, yep, that's the idea. That the adventurers, they've taken a beating, you know, hopefully up on the first level. 
and they've kind of spent a lot of their resources. I mean, they have this uh, kind of measure of health called heart, and then they uh, also have these things called moves, which allow them to uh, um, perform actions in the game. Uh, anyway, they, they, they probably blow through some of those up on that first level. So the first level is really just about exhausting them. Then they head down into the sanctum, and then there's a, a big kind of end end fight there. And that, that fight's do or die, you know? Like, if they win, you're, there's no real getting away, right? <laughs> and your dungeon's just going to be gone. So, like, every time the adventurers enter the dungeon, it's like, okay, who's going to die? Is it them or us? So. so it is kind of a high-stakes thing, then, even if they're low-level adventurers. Yeah, um... I think it's really good advice that the GM should think about adventurers as if they were PCs. Like, imagine this is a group of D&D PCs. What would they do? And what they would do is they would just be really dumbly heroic and keep going for it almost always, right? Or really greedy. And, like, they're not going to run away. So, like, they like they would probably rather just go for the, the, the TPK than to let the bad guys win. And <laughs> the adventurers feel yep. the same way. I've got a I've got a bunch of questions and not enough time I'm sure. Um, That's all right. Yeah, I, I I can kind of go on and on. It's pretty easy for me just to talk about my game forever. Uh, like a lot of this is I think though advice that that applies to other games as well, uh, especially this kind of gaming style. Yeah, I I think there's a lot of interesting stuff here, um, and even a lot of the things that you've said already. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Like, uh, mm -hmm. so the one thing that you mentioned with um. You know, these aren't your characters, or you know, you don't own the characters. Like, yeah, I might play my uh, my other characters a little bit more recklessly now because, like, I don't need to be careful, right? <laughs> yeah, a lot of people kind of I've noticed that, and I think like storyteller system, like World of Darkness, and also uh, D and D um, are sometimes the worst offenders of this. And I, I don't mean to criticize it, I guess, but like, I think a lot of people will make a character and then this is their character their one character and they identify it with it like really strongly and they pour a lot of themselves into that character and um then like they will role play that character for a year or two years or something i don't mean to criticize that style of gaming because that's cool like if you want to do that and that's really fun for you that's awesome right um, I don't really do that, and I don't really want my players to do that because then I start feeling bad as the GM when I kill them. <laughs> so I start pulling my punches. It's like, oh, it'd be a cool story moment right here to just kill this character, but I can't do it. It's going to hurt their feelings or something. So like, I, I don't really want that stuff to be playing in my mind on either side, you know, like as the player either. Like, I don't want to get too attached to them. Yeah, no, and I, I definitely have the... I don't know what you call it, GM, DM syndrome, where mm -hmm. it's like you play for like a couple sessions and then you're like, oh, but if I played this character, that would be really fun too, you know, yeah. and then you kind of start daydreaming about that other character concept. Um, yeah, GMs are kind of the worst players. <laughs> <laughs> I was just getting to it today. Uh, you talk about magic in your system and mm -hmm. and i just really briefly skimmed it but it looks like you have a pretty freeform magic system yeah i guess if you're like the what's the easiest way to explain it 
Um, if you, let's say you're a pyromancer, right? Uh, you're a master of casting flame and stuff. And what we see a lot in, you know, Vancy and Magic, like in D&D, or other systems where you choose specific spells, that it's kind of hard to apply your magic in creative ways that aren't exactly spelled out within the ability. So I'm not that big a fan of that, I suppose. And uh, I like the idea that, okay, you're a pyromancer. You can do pyromancy things. But how do you limit magic, right? Or how do you create a feeling of it scaling? And uh, what I landed on, and this is pretty informed by a game called Barbarians of Lemuria, if you're familiar with that. And like, uh, I, that's where I got like the original idea, I think. I just snagged it from there. Is that um, when you cast a spell, you're basically just doing something with that another action could accomplish. So like, let's say if um, a guy with a sword is going to like smash this uh, enemy or whatever, and the idea is just to kill them, Pyromancy's doing the same thing, cast a fire spell to kill them. So you're just mimicking these other actions. If someone with, uh, let's say, finesse in the system is trying to, or let, let's let's go tinker. Like someone's kind of like trying to tinker a lock open. They're lock picking it, right? They're just trying to do that. The, fire, the, the pyromancy guy can just blast it with flame instead and melt the lock, right? But it's really just mimicking what the other actions could be doing. And that's, that's, that's real simple stuff, and it makes magic really powerful too, right? And uh, uh, inside of the game, you have to kind of create limitations for yourself. You have to set pretty strict boundaries of what magic can do and what it can't do. So, um, or, or things that you might have to do while, uh, like, while casting the magic. Like, for example, if you're a pyromancer, maybe you say you have to spend some of your supply, which is kind of like lim a limited uh, amount of equipment that you have, to pull out some sort of component and use that component whenever you cast your spells. And you create those own limits on yourself. You're, like, like self-limiting how useful your magic is. And you work with the GM on that. So that's like the basic, uh, the basic tier one spells, what they're called. Uh, tier one spells mimic other actions, and you kind of deal with limitations. Then, like magic, kind of scales up though, right? It, it can do stuff that um, a normal action couldn't do. So, if a guy with the axe is trying to kill one guy, okay, but uh, if he's trying to kill like four, well, that's going to be like a series of actions. But a spell, the pyromancer could cast fireball, right? So that's now uh, a tier two spell where. Tier two spells can accomplish what a team of people can accomplish in a short time. So like a team of swordsmen could do the same thing as fi one fireball spell could do. And those cost stress, which is a resource in the game. And they take a dice penalty because it's harder to pull off, meaning it's also more dangerous for you to cast those. Then the next level is tier three, which is like things that would take a team of people a long time to accomplish that uh something like that would be like casting like an enormous fireball to burn down a forest <laughs> or something so sure. that, that would be like a tier three spell and again you take stress and a bigger dice penalty that makes a lot of sense and i agree with the with what you said about the D D spells being like super specific and then like not always being able to be creative with them um yeah and i've i've always liked finding and reading about magic systems where it's like, well, you can, I mean, like you said, you're pyromancer, you can control fire. So like whatever, whatever that would mean, then yeah, you like can if you're do like that. that in, 
Yeah, if you're like that in you know a, a set system, it's like, well, you have Fireball and Scorching Ray, and that's about it. Flaming Hands. You can do these three things, and they're all about combat. So they're all about just killing stuff. You're like, I want to use like Flaming Hands to melt the lock, and then it gets like real kind of technical about how much how much damage you can do to it and whatnot, right? Right. So, but yeah. I mean, like always always referencing D and D is not such a great idea, right? There's a million systems out there. So like, I think Mage is a great example of. Uh, uh, a system that allows for for more flexible magic. I'm just gonna have this massive list of all of the books that I need to read too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if you've done like much like game design yourself, but you get like really, really, really into like reading tons and tons of books and stealing all of their great ideas. So, yes. Um, I don't have anything like published or anything, but I do a lot of. Um, for really any game that I'm playing or running, I end up doing a lot of homebrew stuff and messing around with it. And then I've always been, you know, tried to write like an RPG and I haven't quite found where I want to go with it yet. So, mm. but game design is something I definitely enjoy. And it's probably yeah. why I also enjoy being a uh, dungeon master. Yeah, most GMs already have that, right? Like they all every every GM's homebrewing their own stuff. So all, every GM's like these mini game designers. That's why you see like um, almost every rule set is just they'll just say, you know, like these are just kind of the rules. But if you don't like them, you know, edit it, make it make it your own thing. Like uh, like the book is yours now, the game is yours, so you don't have to play it as is. It's not like you know the creator's gonna bust in your door and get angry <laughs> changing stuff so and then I, I i like that gms usually take that to heart so um are you a game designer full-time no 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 um i uh I, like i said earlier i live in japan i run in english as a second language school here um my job gives me a lot of free time though and uh, especially over the last year, like with the coronavirus, my the student numbers at the school have been going down, which is okay. And that's kind of opened up tons of free time to be working on uh, game design stuff. And in, it was just a hobby, you know, at first. I was just kind of doing it because my job itself isn't super creative. And I like creative endeavors. Uh, I wanted to practice my design skills. And uh, so I started doing that just as kind of a hobby. And then, you know, we uh, like I, I got a little bit more serious about it. I launched a Kickstarter and then that was really successful. And, uh, you know, now it's kind of turning into a thing where I'm needing to make a decision about how I want to be spending my work time. Right. Um, either I need to focus more on my 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 day job or focus more on design. And my kind of heart is in the design side right now uh it's pretty pretty intriguing and interesting and there's been like kind of a lot of doors opened up over the last year so and i have a million ideas of things i want to be <laughs> making so yeah hey that's good you got you've got supply then at least so yeah and yeah so... i mean i guess i'm like just uh, sorry but i guess i'm i'm just lucky enough to kind of have a day job where i can where i can do this stuff right right mix it in with my work and whatever so your Kickstarter went really well. Did that? Did you have a lot of um, like support or knowledge, kind of of your game beforehand, or what was kind of the process leading up to the Kickstarter? Uh, that's a pretty good question, and there's like a like re real long answer, I guess. But um, the the kind of shorter version of it is that no, not really. 
um, new designers are going to struggle hard. It's really, really, really hard to get noticed. And especially if you're not already the member of a community. So like I said, me and my buddy wrote a game uh, before uh, I wrote Wicked Ones. And he, he's still kind of plugging away at it and um, is going to release it eventually. But um, yeah, I guess that, that experience running that game are making that game and uh, making a new system. And we did launch a Kickstarter for that game, and it was kind of had a slow, little bit of success, but not so great. And my motivation bottomed out, and I kind of end ended up backing out of it and just handing it off to him. But um, my point was that um, writing a new system yourself, like a completely new system, is really hard to get people on board with. So you might have great ideas about, or really, really enjoy making core mechanics and, and dice systems and whatever, but it's going to be a huge struggle to get people to actually adopt it, to, to, to learn your system, even just for playtesting. So or like nobody really wants to be reading through the books and kind of learning those mechanics, right, uh, for a system that they may or may not actually enjoy to play, which is why uh, I designed a Forged in the Dark game. So it has an inbuilt audience that you don't have to sell people on the system. Like John Harper already right. did a great job on that. So you just get to kind of like, you know, ride that wave. And uh, now you're just pitching your idea. So it's like if I was pitching, this is like, you know, the Dungeon Keeper game. And here's my new system for it. That's already a barrier to entry that I just don't need. Right. So it was right. lucky that Fortune in the Dark matched it so well. But uh, just being able to tap into that community and instantly have people interested just by saying the concept is is incredibly valuable right and there's that there's kind of a shared language then if they already know the system you say it's forged in the dark <laughs> well they already know basically how to play it it's just yeah. all of the fine details and and the theming that you know they really have to learn which right, right. would be the more exciting part anyways yeah yeah like nobody actually cares about your core mechanic so game designers love it right and i've 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 participated in those communities as well and uh they they think that's just, it's like so what's your game about and they're like all right it's like d10 dice pools <laughs> like no, i mean like I'm, nobody cares about that right like what do you do what do the players do and uh then later it's like why do the mechanics support that and then the mechanics need to be kind of I don't know, transparent, like you, you, you don't want to care about them. You don't even really want players to say like, wow, this mechanic's fun or something like you want them not to think about it, that it's just like, wow, these two things just meld together so well that I don't even notice it. I don't think about it. I don't need to. So it's natural that this mechanic exists. So, Right. It should just be kind of fluid. I see it. I, I'm on a couple of the RPG design and game design subreddits, and I, I mm -hmm. always see a lot of like you know rate my dice mechanic posts yeah and yeah it's, it it makes sense that you're just, they may be successful i mean the powered by the apocalypse stuff blew up the forged in the right. dark stuff blew up iron sworn has been getting bigger you know and those all have yeah. you know non standard uh you know it's not a d20 system but sure. i guess your odds of of breaking through that barrier are you're setting a higher bar for yourself, essentially, by not using a common system. Yeah, those people are all, like, just incredibly good designers, you know? Like, to be honest. I mean, like, Harper actually based his off of Powered by the Apocalypse. So, for, it, I mean, it's a different thing, but it had its roots in Powered by the Apocalypse. So he's just kind of building on it. Changed the dice pool around a little bit, but, but just kind of building on that earlier success. 
but yeah like i mean you might catch fire you know like and have just some new amazing system that people really really want but i don't even think like i don't think exactly that the systems themselves are what make those games good uh I, like uh, uh sean Tompkins' game definitely is iron sworn is like the system that you can play gmless that's real clever and new and neat and people like it a lot and then of course it's good for solo play too but the the playing with two or three players like and then not having a gm yeah that's that's something real new back to blades in the dark a little bit like harvest system it's it's I don't know. It's basically PBTA. You you make rolls and then those generate consequences or you're successful. But uh, the clever stuff is like the flashback mechanic and uh, the way that uh, gear in the game is handled. And it's it's it, the position and effect systems and how important fictional positioning is. Yeah, all that's real clever. But people aren't going to like whatever. If you're on like a game design forum and you're asking people to rate your dice system, you're you're not that level of, of a great designer. <laughs> so sorry, man. <laughs> but I, I, that's a little harsh. But me neither, you know. So like I, I couldn't do it either. So I uh, like used used Forge in the Dark. In Stick, the dark. Well, and it's nice that they make those like uh, Powered by the Apocalypse, Forge in the Dark. It's all open, you know, to use that system you know and just develop whatever you want on top of it right right um kevin crawford had that to say too uh the guy that wrote stars without number uh his his reddit asked me anything from maybe a couple years ago is really awesome but someone asked him he's like why are you using the d20 and why is it osr adjacent and then he's like and he said just as much you know people don't buy uh systems they they buy settings and they buy concepts but they don't really care exactly what the system itself is so might as well use the one that's popular. So Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. When I um I like to run Dungeon World a little bit more than I like to run D and D specifically. Um mm-hmm. just just because it's easier. But my players um are like, Oh, but I just I really like rolling a G twenty and not two D six, you know. Yeah, people criticize the heck out of D&D, right? And then a lot of times you get this situation where uh, the table or the GM will be like, I want to run, uh, let's say, an investigative horror game. Well, you know, Call of Cthulhu is perfect for that, <laughs> or any like gumshoe system and stuff. But but they don't know that system, and their players don't know that system. Their, play- their players know D&D, so they just modify D&D. And I was kind of criticizing it earlier a little bit that, like, D&D is three different games, but they use the same system or whatever. But getting your players to learn a new system is a huge thing. Like, that's a big ask, right? So just, like, maybe sometimes it's okay just to let players play what they're most comfortable with. So that's why people still play, you know, like, D&D so much. Like, they learn it early, uh, it's accessible, and then after that, they don't want to learn something else. Yeah. And I can't really criticize... I, I mean, I can't fault them for that. That's all right, so... I wrote that the other day uh, in a response to something like with with uh, role playing games. I'm uh, super curious and I want to learn a lot of different systems and and play a lot of different systems. But uh, with computer strategy games, I'm not at all like I like uh, paradox um, paradox games like Crusader Kings and Europa Universalis and like I'll play the heck out of those hundreds of hours, but no other strategy games (laughs) like I don't want to learn anything else like that's fine. That's my wheelhouse. I'm, I'm great there. I don't need the other stuff. And other people look at D&D like that, you know? They're like, no, it's my role-playing thing. So I just want to do this one this one that I really know well. Yep, 
nope, that that makes a ton of sense. I just recently found out that there's a there's a Star Wars 5e like basically total conversion for uh, to run it in like a Star Wars setting. I I have not I have not played that, but I my first actual role playing game was the Fantasy Flight uh, yeah. Star Wars system. So I'm familiar with like the Genesis dice and or the narrative dice and and all that. But yeah, it's if I were to take my D and D players or um, that group to do a Star Wars game, I would probably have to go to the Star Wars Five E, not to the Genesis or the the narrative dice, just because it would be a lot more to learn. Yeah, yeah, like that's a big jump too. Like going from a from like a D twenty system into the 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 fantasy flight dice. Those things are hard to parse. <laughs> like, <laughs> it is uh, exhausting. Like I know people love them, and I think it's such a cool concept that I don't want to play. <laughs> like it just seems like a <laughs> like a lot of work to parse the dice. And I know everyone always says you get used to it and stuff, but I don't know, every, on... every time I, I, I've never actually played it, but. <laughs> The online dice rollers make it easy because they do all the cancellations for you, and then it's just, oh, it's a success and two threat, and you're good. That's but... nice. That, that's a good point, yeah. Like, the the kind of, not calculation, but yeah, the processing of it, If th- that does seem like a chore, so... If that, um, like, if the uh, online system just does it for you, that and sense. Since that was my that was my first ever real, like, RPG that I had gotten my hands on... Um, Maybe why I really like dice pools and the like partial success mechanics that uh, PBTA games have and Forged in the Dark yeah. games have, and that's probably also why I really like the Forged in the Dark system because it's it's still a dice pool, but you simplify it down to the you just got to look at your highest dice. Yeah, I've been playing um, last couple of weeks a playtest of a Power by the Apocalypse game, and I gotta say too that I actually don't like the dice system very much. I mean, I'd played it before, uh, before I got into Blades. Um, I'd, I'd played some Power by the Apocalypse games, but like, and then I liked it. But I've been playing Blades now, and I think I don't know, maybe the designer of Blades had a little bit of the same feeling that, like, removing the addition or even subtraction to the role, like 2d6 plus two, parse that, think about what, like, that's just this other little step that I don't even want to be doing. And if you play Forge in the Dark, it's, like you said, it's real easy to parse. You just find the highest one, and you're finished. So something that works really well online, by the way, is uh, with Forge in the Dark games, is color coding the dice faces. So like when we play Wicked Ones, uh, gray is a failure. And uh, one, two, three. And um, <clears throat> uh, blue is a mixed uh, partial success, and red is a success. So you don't even have to look at the dice faces. That it, all it is is just color. So you look, it's like red. You're like, bam, I got it. Like it's instantaneous, and it feels like really satisfying. I saw that you had like a digital dice set or something uh, in the book. Um with those colors and yeah that makes a lot of sense as to just yeah that instant recognition without even having to deal with what the yeah, actual like, number is through through playtesting i had that um kind of comment a lot about like do we need these colored dice or something and especially other people playtesting the game 
And every time I try to kind of push them into using them, like, just try it. It's going to be better. And all the, the feedback on that's always really positive. Like, it's so much better that it becomes annoying not to use them. <laughs> so whenever you're playing other games, you're like, I don't want to look at the dice faces now. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's uh, instantaneous. And like, y you get it all around the table, too. That it's like, as soon as you click the button and it's a failure, everyone's like, oh, right? It's all real satisfying. Yep, it's easy to read. Everybody can read it, and yeah, it's just it's just immediate. But speak, speaking of that, the everybody can read it is uh, they're not really designed for colorblind people. Oh. So, <laughs> like, I mean, they, they still have the dice faces, but yeah, like um, I uh, I decided on the colors, and then I kind of got that feedback at some point that like certain types of colorblindness might have a difficult trouble with this. I'm like, ah, it's like an impossible little problem. What can I do? <laughs> so, yeah. I know some some games use not. I haven't seen it in RPGs, but like video games and stuff, will use like patterns or something along I mean, with the color. But yeah, it makes sense. That's why the that's why the 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 pips are still on there. You know, like they're not right. removed completely. So, and if you had custom dice, you could do like blank sides for the failures, and then like a mm -hmm. symbol for partial, and then a symbol for the success, and then it wouldn't matter what the yep. color was. But Mouse Guard actually does that. Um, they use like D6 dice pools too, and uh, they have like snakes on one side and like a sword on another or something like that, which I thought's a cool idea. But I liked the idea of color. I don't know. Like for some reason, it's a little bit stronger for me. It's quick. Yeah. There's a couple things that I was looking at in the book for character. So character creation. Uh, it was in the character uh, section. Um, Primal abilities, it looked yep. like those were like custom abilities that you could give your characters. Um, yeah, it's there's kind of a design problem, and actually, uh, I'll I'll just say that primal abilities is pretty inspired by uh, the Xeno abilities in Scum and Villainy, uh, the kind of Star Warsy or Cowboy Beboppy hack of uh, Blades of the Dark. That it's just like you have this problem that, like in that system, right? You have this problem. Aliens exist and aliens can do things. And how do we model that? And how do we create a system for allowing the different types of abilities they might have? And it's got to be really open and flexible, right? Well, monsters have the same problem. I think a good example is like a troll. Trolls can re regenerate, right? And that's just true about trolls. So that's pretty powerful. So if we just say, like, if you're a troll, you get to regenerate, plus the other abilities. That's not fair, um, kind of balance-wise. Um, yep. So, uh, yeah, because then you get in a weird situation where, like, okay, we should always pick trolls <laughs> or something, right? So, like, what Primal Ability does is it replaces... Um, you, you start with uh, two abilities, right? So Primal Ability replaces one of those. And then... There's some kind of design guidelines to it that the more powerful it is, then you should maybe put a caveat to it, like, or a weakness. So um, it's like you can regenerate, but it costs stress. Or you can regenerate, but it, it takes a long time or something, right? Player basically comes up with what they think that ability should be, right? And then runs it by the, the DM. Yep, yep. And I'm going to be writing pretty soon. Like, I got a little bit of feedback that there's some examples in the book, but there's kind of not enough, maybe, for people for some people to feel comfortable making their own. So I'm going to be writing a, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe about 20 of them or something. I'm going to make a little PDF and send it out. 
just have like 20 or so, 20 or 30 different examples. Just try to think of any fantasy creature that people might want to play and then show how I would model their ability. The uh, War for the Overworld supplement I'm writing, the supplement based on the video game, uh, it in in War for the Overworld, there are these like many different fantasy creatures, right? And they're pretty pretty different than just uh, uh, like they're they're their own unique type of creatures, right? That they made for that game, and they all have abilities. And I'm going to model each of those with primal ability, also, just to give people a lot of framework for it. Sure. Then, like you also have some um, uh, some monsters that are just too different that they can't really be modeled. And uh, that's where primal monsters come in. So primal ability is just one ability, but a primal monster is, uh, like, at their core, they're just really different than other monsters. And in Wicked Ones, that's something like dragons, right? Like, dragons have, like, this kind of wide range of abilities and this uh, very, very, uh, uh, I don't know, some things that are just really true about dragons, right? And um, to model those better... I got rid of the typical character playbooks and instead crafted their own custom rules and custom playbook for the entire monster. So uh, it, it changes some fundamentals of how the game works to better model them, which was really fun to design. Like it kind of got really experimental with a lot of the mechanics. How long did it take you to write this game? Uh, that's a difficult question. Uh, two okay. years, I guess. Yeah, maybe uh, saying about two years. Um, I mean, I, like I say, I say that two years, but, um, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to really count the time, you know, um, how many hours I spent writing it or then there were certain bursts where I did a lot and then I would do not much for a few months Yep. or I would get stuck grinding away at just like one or two small things that just took forever to get through. Uh, we need lots and lots and lots of play testing. So in the beginning, for about the first year, I was running two two playtest uh, campaigns a week, and just like trying out many different things. So, if it's in the book, basically, it's had at least some level of playtesting to it. That was kind of like the goal. So every little build that we could get to, uh, try try to like bring it up into a game somewhere. Um, so like a lot of it was just spending time playtesting. And then finish writing, and then I did layout for the book myself, so that took a long time too. But that wasn't really time spent writing, right? Um, and the the playtesting was that just with uh, groups of friends that you were already playing with, anyways, or was it random people? It's it's both. Um, it it was originally my uh, group of friends that I that I just played with, and uh, we we'd finished up uh, some other campaign, and. Um, I forget what it was, but then I wanted them to play Mouse Guard, and I was uh, pitching the game to them. And uh, at the same timing, I had been looking at Blades in the Dark, and because I was really interested in the coin system in Blades in the Dark, I really like wealth systems in games, uh, especially abstract ones. And I was looking at, it, I was like, "That's pretty cool. That looks fun to interact with uh, the way that coin works." And um, but anyway, I was pitching Mouse Guard to these guys. Uh, and kind of strongly, and I don't think they were into it at all, because you just play as like, little mice that fight snakes and stuff. <laughs> I don't think they thought it was as cool as I did. And then uh, I was like, all right, all right, like, how about, like, you know, Mouse Guard? And they're like, I don't know. I'm like, well, there's this other game, Blades. They're like, let's do that one. <laughs> like, so <laughs> they, I don't even think they cared. They just didn't want to play the mouse game. And, uh, yeah, so then we picked up Blades, and uh, I ran that a little bit. And then, like, it was just, you know, in my mind, I was like, I got to make this Dungeon Keeper game. 
and uh, started in on the mechanics, and I used them as my first playtest group. Um, and it was, and that's like kind of a, a nice maxim to follow is to put it on the table as soon as possible. Like as soon as you have something playable, like it's going to be rough and it's going to be terrible, but get it to the table because you're going to learn so much more in like two hours at the table than than you are just writing by yourself. So. Like, as soon as it was even, like, just a little bit playable, which meant me just switching up a couple of playbooks, I put it on the table, and we started grinding away at it there. Then uh, I needed to get another playtest campaign going um, for, uh, well, one, to um, playtest more. But two, I knew I needed to start growing a, a little community to find other people who are interested in the game and maybe have them start running. So I wanted to teach people to GM the game, basically, and then spin them off. So sure. I recruited a bunch of ran random people, too. And about that timing, too, I met Cass, Cass Ray. He's the consulting designer for Wicked Ones. Uh, we met on the Blades in the Dark Discord, and uh, he was into the concept. And then it kind of started, like, slowly, just bouncing ideas. And then, like, before before we knew it, like, we were, like, running playtests together, and then... Just like every every mechanic in the game was going back and forth between us, so like he kind kind of co-wrote the game, I guess. I mean, like I wrote it all, but like every single thing that is in the game got bounced off of him. So sure, he's sure. writing the uh, he's writing the Undead Awakening uh, expansion now, so that's just about finished. And you've got a so do you have a couple expansions that are coming out? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm writing that War for the Overworld one, and. Um, it's going to focus more on, uh, like, have you ever played uh, Dungeon Keeper or War for the Overworld? Um, no. The well, I've played I've played the mobile version of Dungeon Keeper, which is probably okay. not even comparable, but I, I get the idea. Yeah, it's 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 a travesty, but okay. <laughs> like it, it gets the concept across. Um, like in those dungeons, there's this thing called the Dungeon Heart or the Dungeon Core. Which is really different than the the kind of sanctum type gameplay where the PCs are uh, on another level, right? But the dungeon heart is like at the center of the dungeon instead, and I wanted to capture that gameplay. So the PCs are going to be more like minions in the War for the Overworld expansion, and in, in that they can interact with the first floor of the invasion, and then like the the dungeon core is going to be on that first floor. And then there's also going to be this kind of GM character called the Underlord. And then that's actually this kind of almost godlike figure that they are serving. So that's sort of the fiction of War for the Overworld or Dungeon Keeper. That the, the player is the disembodied hand, right? So like that thing is called the Underlord, right? And I, I, I want to capture that type of story, that type of dungeon story, too. So that's War for the Overworld. Then the Undead Awakening is uh, play as undead leading zombie hordes. There's no dungeon. It's just you're <laughs> in a region, and you have zombie hordes, and it's gruesome and bloody and disgusting and awesome. <laughs> so... Like I thought, like Wicked Ones was pretty, pretty, you know, gross with monsters and stuff, and they'll sacrifice stuff or whatever, or kill people, and it's all sort of bloody. <laughs> like Undead Awakening kicks it up like ten notches. As <laughs> <laughs> your classic zombie movie, then, right? Right. Yeah. But... Yeah. Yeah. There's a XP trigger for grossing out your fellow players, so it's like, did oh, you get nice. a reaction like that? So people try to hit that to like really, yeah, to really. Uh, up the gore factor. Well, that's so. a good way to incentivize role playing. Then, is to yeah, 
dangle experience in front of them. Yeah, like that's another lesson from Blades. It's just XP triggers are really, really powerful, right? Like if you want to promote a certain type of story, I mean, you got you have uh, you have sticks and you have carrots, right? And the XP triggers are really nice carrots that you just dangle them out there, and then if they want to get it, okay, but they don't have to, and they're not forced to. And then XP is not super valuable anyway because you grow, like I said, you grow kind of like horizontally, not vertically, in power. So it, it lets you do more things, but yeah, you're not. <laughs> getting just overtly more powerful at the same time right right i mean people want xp but i feel like they're not so hungry for it that it's okay when it doesn't happen and then then of course you have sticks right and that's just things that you force them to do like like pcs cannot leave the sanctum like you just can't there's no way like no matter how hard you want to you can't so like it just breaks the kind of breaks the the premise of the game right um, when you guys were doing your playtesting, was there any like major things that you found out when you're doing it that were like, this just is not going to work? Oh, nonstop. Yeah, you find out tons of stuff like that. Like, um, that's that's just another little like uh, game design advice is that you're going to have darlings, right? You're going to have these things that you just love. You're going to make some cool mechanic and you just think you're a genius or something. And then you put it to the table and it's going to suck. <laughs> like, And it's going to be hard to get rid of it that you just want to make it work. You want this thing to be a thing. And it's, sometimes you just can't and it's not going to work or it doesn't match tabletop role playing or it creates the wrong feeling and then you have to kill it, right? So like killing your darlings is the hardest part. Um, but you 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 hit those nonstop. Uh, that's why that's why playtesting is everything. The sanctum thing was like that, that I didn't really want to lock them in the sanctum, you know? Like I I didn't know if that was necessary or not. But um, we just had these kind of dumb invasion scenes where they would just set up defenses at the entrance. <laughs> like they would just rush to the entrance and try to keep the adventurers outside. And it doesn't create the kind of cool, cool inside the dungeon story, right? Right. Well, and, you know, that bottleneck would be tactically the best decision. Yeah. And like yeah. every and time. But playing Exactly, but playing playing this game isn't about making good decisions. It's about it's about uh, it's about playing a dungeon. So like you wanted to, we're we're trying to emulate a very specific type of fiction. You know, that like we want the adventurers to be grinding through the dungeon and killing the minions and you know destroying the creatures and setting off traps and then then coming down into the sanctum. We want that scene. So. You gotta like really, really, really specifically craft it and make sure that the mechanics support that scene almost always. Well, and that makes sense. The tactically optimal choice is not necessarily the one that is the most interesting to see played out. Right, right. It's not a game to be won. That's another really good point um, about uh, dark impulses in the game. Um, and this, this is. Uh, Kind of, kind of taken from Fate, uh, where they have this, uh, these things called aspects, and then this compel system, where if your character has this aspect, the GM can push you to follow through on that aspect, right? And the same thing in Wicked Ones, where, like, let's say, um, let's see, let's say, like, a character is cruel, and the smart thing to do is just to kill this guard 
right? But you're really cruel, so the GM can compel you. All right, you're looking at this guard, right? And instead of killing him, and maybe you've already been like rolled here. It's like you have permission to kill him already, right? But instead of killing him, you just stab his hand into the wall and leave him stuck there. So now you're now and then you're kind of creating this problem. You should kill him. That's the smart move. But do the cruel thing and you're going to get a dark heart. And that's a meta currency to allow you to add a die later. And then that's going to let you do these not strategic things that are fun. But like if you're doing those anyway uh, without any benefit, other players are going to get annoyed. They're going to be like, just just kill him so we can move on and try to finish this 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 plan, right? And like, why do you always have to do the the kind of dumb, goofy, evil stuff or whatever? But if there's incentive, then all the players become accepting of it. That they just feel like it's okay because they want to get that dark heart too. That it's there mechanically in the game and we're supposed to be doing it, so it's okay. So it kind of gives you permission to send stuff off the rails. Yeah, that's and that's really cool. And I think that, and sometimes I've seen in like my D and D games where, yeah, you're always you always. Or most people want to make the optimal decision, right? Like, oh, we messed up here. Well, we're just going to kill everybody and move on because that's the safest thing to do. But, like, would would your characters really do that? I mean, probably not. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, <But. laughs> and then, like, and I see both sides of it. That it's just, like, the other players are just like, we just want to move on or whatever. But and then you, you always have someone like, no, I'm not going to do that because my character wouldn't do that. <laughs> It's like, oh, nobody cares what your character would do. Let's just move on. Because a game like D&D, the mechanics support just killing them and moving on, right? So, like, you have to be... If you want to get into, like, role-playing your characters in a system without a lot of support for it, you have to be really altruistic. Like, you have to just be doing, uh, I don't know, like, really, really method-acting your character or something. And... Um, but there's there's no real uh, incentive to do so, and in the end, you just kind of annoy the other PCs, uh, not PCs, players, right? Uh, that that's why, like in games with XP triggers or compels, um, players can get kind of broader per permission to do things that aren't exactly the most efficient. So instead, they have the permission to create the cool scene. I think I'm going to need to bring that to to my other games, not. Uh, just to say, like, hey, if your character does this thing this session, you're gonna get a, a you know some bonus experience just to entice them a little bit more uh, to roleplay. Yeah. yeah, it's something to think about, right? Um, uh, creating those little those little triggers. Uh, another another thing that um, works really well with the triggers is that they they make for perfect end of session recaps. So at the end of at the end of every session, then you go through your list, right? And you'll you'll just say like okay like um, one of the triggers is using your gear in like a non-typical way so doing something kind of clever, and my idea there was that like you know monsters are always using like they take out their uh, bone necklace and then they use it to kind of uh, pick a lock with it or something right oh yeah or they even use the bone necklace to pick their teeth and intimidate someone <laughs> like they they don't care or something, and uh, you know making your gear part of some scene and giving it personality in that way. And that's uh, then you get XP. So at the end of the session, you get your chance to tell that story again, right? It's like, did you did I do anything? Well, oh, I did do this, and you kind of recap it, and it and it and it summarizes the two or three hour session that you just had. So that way, it stays in people's minds longer, and then next time they're more ready to kind of jump right back into it. Yeah, it's just a natural 
like you said, natural summary recap of just everything mm. that they did. And yeah, that's really cool. Dungeon World like kind of players... has that a little bit, but not, oh, sure, like, sure, to yeah. that ex- not to that extent. It's more like, did we kill something big? Did we find something cool? Yeah, yeah. Like, I think it's like, I forget. I forget the way Dungeon World experience works. It's like everyone gets it if you've done the thing. Yes, I think it's if somebody, basically, if any of the players can, um, can give you an example of them fulfilling it, then everybody gets it. And I think there's only three questions. I think it's I uh, kill like kill a weird monster, discover some like lost treasure, and um, like learn some bit of lore or something like that. And then the yeah. rest of the experience is gained when they roll poorly. That's when right. they roll a miss. But yeah, that that makes for a nice little end of session uh, recap. I've always I've always really enjoyed that. So you get to kind of talk about all the cool stuff you did. You said that you did the uh, layout and everything for the book. Ah, uh, yep, yep. What uh, what software did you use to do that? Uh, it's all done in InDesign, Adobe InDesign. That's a pretty. Uh, there's a couple of other free options. Um, let's see if I can remember. Scribus is maybe free, and then Affinity Publisher is not free, but it's just pay one time. Maybe it's around forty bucks. Um, a lot of designers use those. Uh, Adobe, the Adobe Creative Suite's kind of expensive, you know, like it's like 50 bucks a month and it's like on a subscription service. But for me, like, I mean, I use it at work anyway, like I already had it, but just having the best tool for the job is really nice that I've heard that both of the others can be quite finicky, you know, um, they not so smooth to use. I've I haven't actually used either of them. Uh, I've just always been familiar with Adobe. So sure. Uh, yeah, like I I don't know. Like uh, it's it's kind of hard to give advice. It's kind of hard to tell like some new designer that it's like you should pick up this thing that costs fifty bucks a month. And they're like, well, if I spend like six months, it's like three hundred bucks, and I don't even know if I'm gonna make three hundred bucks on the little like adventure I'm making <laughs> or whatever, right? But getting used to the tools uh, that professionals use is a pretty good idea, I think. There's a huge amount of support for them as well. So when you don't know how to do something, you can just look it up. It's really easy. But I mean, I've, I've seen other designers sing the praises of Affinity Publisher as well. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, any of those kind of works? Sure. Yeah, I know I've heard in, uh, InDesign is the industry standard. And I, I know I've heard mention of the other ones. I was just kind of curious what you use. But yeah, if you're using it for work already, then um, it just kind of makes sense. Yeah, that sense. was like a nice part. Like I said, I uh, I run an English language school and I make textbooks um, for it. So I'd already done like a fair amount of um, kind of boring technical looking layout, uh, mostly just black text on white paper. But uh, I really wanted to do something yeah, very graphical and like kind of colorful and creative. So I think, I, I mean, you can see that with the book Wicked Ones. It's, uh, I don't know, it's a uh, pretty challenging layout to try. So I, I ended up being really happy with myself. Like if I can kind of toot my own horn there a little bit, like I kind of can't believe I made that book. So and a lot of that strength too is on Victor's art, Victor Costa. He's the artist for the book. Um, when I went into making it in the very beginning, 
I knew that I wanted to work with one artist and have one vision, right? That it just has this one kind of specific theme throughout the entire book. And uh, luckily I found Victor and it's just been great working with that guy. And uh, we kind of worked out the style for the book and the way he draws and the kind of way I write, I think match really well. So that they kind of have the same tone that that all that all went about as perfectly as it possibly could have. So, yeah, reading reading through it and the artwork, especially the artwork and the layout, I think really, it's just a really good product. It, as you know, for me reading through it, it was just really easy to go through. Um, cool, thanks. Yeah. So yeah, I and the artwork definitely is awesome. Now, why don't you? Uh, tell us where we can find Wicked Ones um, and where we can find you as well. Ah, sure. Um, like, maybe some of you have seen this or whatever, but I just recently re released a free version of Wicked Ones. I switched over to a free and deluxe model, uh, the same that Stars Without Number, World Without Number follows. I was, like, super inspired by that. Uh, so, I mean, there's no reason not to. You should go grab a free copy of it and look through it. If anything, look at Victor's art because it's awesome. So if you want to see a bunch of cool monsters and dungeon imps and stuff, uh, it's pretty neat. You can find it at Drive -through RPG. Uh, but the, I guess the easiest way to, to say it on here would be our website, banditcamp.io. So that's all one word, banditcamp.io. And you can just go there and get links to go over to Drive Through RPG and, and grab a copy. I'll throw a link to um, both Drive Through and to your actual website as well in the yeah. show notes. Uh, if I might encourage you to maybe sign up for the newsletter on our website. Uh, I don't really use the newsletter at all except to announce new products. So if you're interested at all in what we're doing, like I'm not gonna spam you with it, but if you want an update, like whenever I release something new, you can sign up for the newsletter there. We also have a Discord, which is pretty pretty active. So if you're looking for a group or something, you can jump on there. Or just like I'm always around, so if anyone has any questions for me, they can they can just ping me there and talk about it. Cool. Well, thank you, Ben. It has been a blast talking to you. Um, yeah, this has been fun. <laughs> I, uh, like I've been talking like nonstop. I think I'm starting to lose my voice. <laughs> well, hopefully that doesn't affect your job too much here if you don't no, have a voice. Okay. But yeah, a lot of fun. I'd love to have you on again sometime um, if you're open to it. And Yeah, I definitely will be. Hit me up in a couple of months or something. I'm sure we'll have a lot more to talk about. Yeah, and then if you're farther along with your releases and everything, then... And we can talk about those as well. So I look forward to getting my hands on hopefully a physical copy of your book soon and and uh, interested in seeing what your expansions are as well. So, Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server.